I'm Gary with Mindset Growth Podcast. I have Heather with me here, my co-host today. We are so excited to have uh, Roy Osing back as a guest. We did a part one. If you have not heard part one, you really need to go out and listen to that episode. It really sets the tone and the foundation for this because what we really did is just get to know Roy and understand his unique, different approach to how he had built success and taken took a company from a startup to a billion dollars and how he approached life, how he interacted with people. And it just was very interesting that there wasn't necessarily a formula. It was more a personality and relationship and how he viewed his role in serving others. What are some of your thoughts based off of that? Well, yeah, you touched on it. Roy is very much, how do I serve others? How do I help others stand out? And that's what what we really dove into and, and we'd like to continue exploring. The, the one challenge I'm going to lay out for anybody listening to this, he brought up an example in that first episode of a bell and the bell curve and of the one or 2%, but I'm going to say one percenters that are out on that curve and how those people make a difference and how, uh, how he wants to see how you can, and he called it the glut of the people in the center, how we can move those people out further and increase that from one to two to 3% in a way to change the world. And I think a lot of that, the message I took from it was we have to take our focus off of ourselves and we have to focus on serving and helping other people and making their life better helping them find success and how they want to find it. And it's a big problem that we have in society. We're so driven to serve ourselves and that we're so entitled. So that was a huge deal to me. And so when we get into this book, um, it just, I'm, I'm excited for it because I think it's going to um, really help maybe ex expand a little bit of what what uh, an insight on what his mindset is and how he's how he was there so with that roy thanks for the first one uh welcome you back uh, i'm on page two of your book and i'm going to read a uh, two paragraphs here to get us kicked off and started and then i want a little bit of your thoughts based off of that um it it starts with it just says snapshot and the t the title or headline is what does it take to be an in uh, a unforgettable leader. And I'll, and I'll read this pair, these two paragraphs. Every leadership expert develops their own angle, but generally they all have a common theme that runs through the, their narrative, which is influenced by theatrical con, uh, concepts and behavioral principles. Most writers on leadership are influenced more by what theory suggests should work as opposed to being guided by what has been proven to work in the messy world complicated by uncertainty, turbulence, and unpredictability. And I'm going to read the third chapter or a paragraph as well. Great leaders are recognized for being different from their in-the-herd colleagues because they don't follow common doctrine. Rather, they do what is necessary in the moment with imperfect humans to get things done in a messy, can't be Form, uh, familiarized world. I feel like there's a lot of big words and tongue twisters in there because those three paragraphs have probably put me in a place that I can meditate on that for several weeks and build a lot of material from it. So break it down for us a little bit. 
because it's such a shift of what we see so so often. Well, I, I guess, you know, in a word, um, uh, leadership uh, to me is, is not all about what you read. It's about what you do consistently to deliver value for others. And I'm not denigrating the worth of an academic uh, education. What I'm saying is that it, it doesn't go far enough and unfortunately, um, education raises an expectation with most people that in and of itself, it will drive success. My experience is that it doesn't, that there are certain things that one has to take on in the real world to leverage whatever you've learned um, to be successful. And, but, but there's so much uh, emphasis uh, on uh, principles and formula and theory that people are forgetting that there's the other half. I call it turning a brave idea into a crude deed. There's too much work around the brave ideas that are driven by academic uh, principles and not enough time being spent on driving the crude deed, which is actually, uh, you know, breathing life into that, into that idea that you have. And so my leadership world was all about execute first, plan second. Yep. Execute mm -hmm. first, plan second. So I've written an ebook on that. And the whole idea is that as leaders, our main purpose in life, our raison d'etre, okay, is to execute flawlessly and drive performance in an organization. That's what we are paid to do. Nothing else. Okay. Typically that happens through what? It happens through human beings. It's human beings that drive performance. Okay. So, so I concluded really early on that what I need to do is I needed to find a way as a leader to light fires in people to get them motivated to go on a journey. Let's go on a journey to a billion. Well, I didn't use those terms. In fact, upon reflection, I got, I got gooseys again. Uh, just happened to me. Uh, we didn't know we were going to get a billion. We knew that it was, it was a huge upside, but we didn't know it was a billion. But what we did, did know it was order of magnitude. And the only way to get there is to, is to light fires in people. And so my leadership approach was all about what are the simple how-to things I could do to help people understand the journey that we are on and get them passionately committed to do it. And so these were not theoretical concepts that we came up with. These were just basic in the trench things, okay, which we can unfold as we go. But the important thing is it's a how-to approach right, that is supposed to enable people to do a better job as a leader tomorrow, all right, without, okay, having to spend a lot of time reading chapter four on leadership 101. That's not where we go. That's not what we need to do, okay? The world is too imperfect, and it's too stochastic, right, and it's too chaotic. It's too uncertain. It's too unpredictable to be able to apply academic principles Okay, and get the kind of performance levels that that we should be expected to deliver in this environment. And so, yeah, my my thing was was all about lighting fires, driving performance, doing things differently than everybody else, uh, getting looked at as a crazy individual. Well, that's fine, uh, and having to try and push rope uphill in an environment that really didn't like a whole lot of dramatic change. I mean, this is a telecom world, 
okay, that was going from engineering driven disciplines into marketing, right? And I was the youngest executive on the block being asked to take over this company. And I had some ideas that my colleagues thought were crazy, but look at the only thing that convinced them was performance. I mean, if it weren't for the fact that this stuff actually drove performance, they would have been right. I would have been crazy trying to do things that I thought were cool. And that's not the point. So let me stop there. Okay. So I have a follow-up question with you based off of that. Because I will see a company go out, find success, and they will then think that they can go over to a friend or company B, plug in the same thing, and that company will have the same success. And I have yet to see it happen with at all. It will, it, it's always going to end up that something has to change because what worked with company A is not going to work with company B. And I'm sure you see it within departments. If you have a company the size you ran, that even departments had to function differently apart from each other because systems don't necessarily grow companies. Oh, you're absolutely right. You know, if, if, and if you if you do that, if you simply simply copy somebody else and expect to get marvelous results, then give your head a shake. I mean, because that's a crazy way right. to, to go through mm -hmm. any any organization. But look at, I mean, success for me started with I had to have a strategy, a different way to look at the the sort of strategic imperatives that that I was facing. So I had to create my own and it's in the book, my own planning process, because the, the normal traditional planning process uh, I discovered wouldn't work. You know, the SWATs, the bots and subject matter experts and all that kind of stuff. It would have taken me too long and it would have been too expensive and I wouldn't have been able to execute it anyway. So I had to create my own. It's called a strategic game planning process. I can do it in 48 hours for any organization. In fact, I did a gig last week. It was so much fun. We got, we got this was a, this was a, a lawn and care uh, garden company. We actually got them into property development, which is another story, right? But the process is like invigorating and it's it's like empowering. In, in 48 hours, by answering three questions, how big do you want to be, which is a statement of revenue growth, who do you want to serve, which is a statement of what your customer groups you want to target, how are you going to compete and win, which is all about competitive differentiation. That can be done in 48 hours. So the whole notion here, okay, a business success begins with a strategy. You can't be tactically driven. And when you assume somebody else's strategy, that's exactly what you're doing. You're being driven by tactics and that's deadly. So start there, get a good strategic hook established and then start to work on programs and crazy things that actually enables people to serve that strategy in a way that nobody else does. That will deliver success. Uh, but the gargling Google thing, which we talked about, which is copying everything that's going on around you and increasing the herd of sameness by one doesn't work. Right. I kind of want to piggyback on something that Gary mentioned, which taking the strategies of one business and trying to apply it to a, to another, the, the plug and play, right? So we have McDonald's everywhere. You, you know what to expect when you go from one McDonald's to another. There's a reason that we will drive three, four miles to a different one because of the team, right? Because of how it runs. So there's that human factor that, that I know you talked about developing that so many people are missing out on. Our best resource, our team. Right. I, uh, Absolutely. I mean, 
you know, and, and it's not about what you do with artificial intelligence, mm-hmm. right? It's not about what your sexy social media strategy is. The real issue is what are you trying to achieve? What do you want to be when you grow up as a business? In 24 months too, by the way, because I don't believe in five-year plans. They never show up. The fourth year never shows up in a, in a five-year plan ever. And all it does is give you permission to delay things to the fourth year. So in other words, it, it, it encourages inaction. So you want to be able to execute a strategy, you got to have a short-term time horizon. So my horizon is 24 months, 24, day, 24 periods of 30 days. That's the strategy you go on and you start marching. Okay. And so if you have that, you now have the ability to govern everything that goes on around you, right? You get, the, you get, a, you get a benchmark. Right. to say, what are the key things that we need to do? But to take a long, I mean, the longer term strategies, unfortunately, don't work very well, unless you want to take them to a banker and, and mesmerize them on an extrapolation. Well, but the other thing is, it, it's a really slow way to find movement. If you're, oh. you're, if you're down on the 30 day or 12, 24 month plan, you can shift and maneuver pretty quickly. And uh, if you're waiting on a five year plan, you're sleeping yourself on the way there. So I'm going to move forward a little bit uh, to, to chapter three here. And it just talks about, you talk about, I'll summarize about having a line of sight and that having a line of sight is a leadership skill that will set you apart from every other leader. And I think uh, you kind of kick the idea of being a visionary in the head a little bit in our previous episode and just with having a line of sight it you know some people could construe that as possibly being a conflict of what you were saying but i think it's just to me as a laser focus but explain that a little bit so line of sight again is a is a term that i've coined for a, a certain leadership behavior that's basically needed to drive performance in the organization like one of the one of the thing one of the problems with with delivering consistently high levels of performance is is organizational dysfunction, and what I mean by that is is a, an environment where people don't understand their roles, and so they're left unto their own devices to define their role and executing the the new strategy that the organization set in place. Okay, so person A decides that their role in sales is to do this. Person B in sales has a slightly different view, so they do something else. And so what you end up doing is you get you get all the people in the organization very busy, but they're all doing different things and energy dissipates and effectiveness of deploying the strategy suffers. So what line of sight says is that the leader's role is not to delegate what the strategy is to the organization. It's to show and translate the strategy for every employee into what it means specifically for them. Okay, so you can imagine, I mean, this organization I had was thousands of people. Okay, so line of sight leadership forced me to actually have workshops with everybody in the organization on what our strategy was and what what new roles they had to take on and what existing roles they had to give up. And so it was translating that strategy down to what people do in and every day. So it was it was it was its purpose was to drive flawless execution, everybody together and get a functional organization defined to be everybody working together with a shared purpose, which is to drive to that that uh, performance goal that we had. 
So it's got nothing to do with vision. It's got everything to do with execution of the strategy. And I got to tell you, it was arduous as hell. It really <laughs> was. But at the end of the day, every salesperson knew what they had to do. Every marketing person knew what they had to do. Every marketing and salesperson what, knew what they had to do to work together. Everybody in an internal audit knew what they, had, what they had to do in order to, to drive to the strategy. Internal audit's an interesting one because it's all about killing dumb rules. Killing dumb rules. <laughs> which, is, which is funny that you just say that because I have one of your blogs pulled up and it talks about um, policies being dumb and breaking policies. But we, <laughs> we can go uh, if you want to kill the dumb rules. Let's talk wanna, about that a little bit. That. Because I think yeah, that's because so that's a it, it, block for a lot of people. Yeah, look, it, this was exceedingly strategic. Right? So, so I had this this notion again about performance. Right, the notion was we got too much friction going on inside the, the organization, friction that was pre preventing delivering value to customers. So the question was, how can I increase the viscosity of the inside machine? Mm. Oh, I never thought of that before. Could you please, Gary, write that down and text it to me? Because I keep saying things that I can never remember. Anyways, increasing the internal viscosity of the machine to reduce friction. My reasoning was if we could do that, then throughput is, 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 is improved, right? And consistency, to your point, Heather, is, is improved. Okay, so cleansy internal environment was kind of the name. And I hit upon one element of that there were actually a couple but one element uh, of that program uh, uh theorized that if we could eliminate the the rules and policies and procedures that customers hated if we could eliminate those then we would be saying yes to them more frequently as opposed to no and they would buy more from us and the viscosity of the machine would increase and all would be good in be different or be dead land because revenues would go up. And so I started a kill the dumb rules um, program. And it, and it was really simple, go to the front line and other people ask them, what are the rules and policies that customers hate, right? That they mm -hmm. tell their friends how, how, how stupid we are and how bad we are that they typically get upset about and go to the competition. What are they? Mm -hmm. Okay, rules and policies and procedures. Now, the interesting thing is when I first introduced this notion, my executive colleagues thought I was crazy. In fact, the HR executive vice president said to me, Roy, I mean, as a president of the company, should you really be talking about dumb rules? I mean, really, it doesn't seem like the appropriate thing to say. That's and a I very said, politically oh. correct answer, isn't it? Yeah, or so thought I said, process. Donna, tell you what, I will change the name to stupid policies if you <laughs> like, but I will never change. Okay, to get away with the notion that, that, that to try and rationalize something that pisses people off mm -hmm. is not the right leadership characteristic. And so it's dumb rules. And so I launched this thing. And so we had dumb rules committees throughout the organization, right? And the objective of the committee with a frontline chairperson was to seek out and destroy and or otherwise modify because some of the rules were, it were required legally which, but we, we could at least make them customer friendly. I don't wanna come back to that. Get rid of the dumb rules. Management's role, okay, all my, was to make it easy 
for the dumb rules committees to execute their recommendations. That's what they were. It was on their performance plan. Now, a lot of them didn't like it because they saw their role as being middle managers where they tell people what to do. And here they were, right, being presented by a bunch of dumb rules by a dumb rules committee. And their role was to help them get rid of those rules. I would show we'd have contests and we would have awards, the annual dumb rules committee awards. Then we would just make a big deal of this. I got to tell you, frontline people, they were ecstatic. They were absolutely blown away. I'd show up in a workplace with a long sleeve white T-shirt with with dumb rules written in red and crossed out with a big <laughs> red X. Right. Here comes Roy and his dumb rules committee thing again in his dumb rules T-shirt. The point was it engaged everybody. Employee engagement for all you I HR freaks out there. OK, employee engagement went through the roof. Why? Mm -hmm. Because people finally had the ear of somebody who could, who could do what they always known was right. Right. Get rid of things that get in the way of saying yes to customers. And it gradually mm -hmm. took me into this whole notion of creating a say yes culture. Okay. Which is not just externally, but it's also internally as well. We should be, you know, dealing with ourselves in a way that allowed us to say yes more frequently. And so at the end of the day, there were some rules that, um, yeah, we couldn't change. But the notion here is, think about it. If you can get rid of 30%, okay, 25% of the things that were creating friction mm -hmm. in your inside machine, will you not improve the top line? I mean, it is so simple, at least I thought, so simple. And so we launched this dumb rules thing. It captured the hearts of people. Performance just kept going. Now, if you were to ask me what exactly part of the billion is associated with that, I don't know. And it doesn't matter. The point is, in aggregate, all these crazy things increased the viscosity of the machine, drove more consistent results, mm -hmm. got us more revenue, and customer service results went up, employee engagement re results went up. My leadership percep perception, easy for me to say, results went up. Why? Because I was listening. But, to these people, but you, giving them what they want. But very critical. There's two things. First, it's just the KISS principle. Keep it simple, stupid. I mean, that's, let's cut it and make it easy. And middle management on any organization, I don't care if there's 20 people, there are people that love processes and procedures oh. that slow down the growth. It doesn't matter if you're tiny or you're large. Well, a couple right. thoughts on this too. First of all, you're making, you're getting your customer buy-in. But when you get the, that employee or, or team buy-in, everybody's happy. It's a win-win. Like, I kind of relate it to when you have to call in about your cable and you see all these other, you know, they're getting the, the cheaper price for, for starting up. And then you try to go in and cancel or upgrade or something. And you know that the person on the other end that you're talking to, they agree with you. Like, yeah, this is stupid that we can't offer this to you. You can tell in their voice. So what are they going to do for you, really? Yeah, yeah, I, I know. I wish I could, but I can't. So I know that that's kind of dumbing down the whole process, but. Well, it's interesting. It, no, it's, no, it's not. You're absolutely right. That's exactly what happens. And these people are stuck in a stay no culture. They hate mm -hmm. it because they are driven, the good ones, and most of them are, they are driven to take care of the customer. That's what they know how to do. If only we could make it easy for them to enable the transaction as opposed to control it. 
See, we are control freaks. Most organizations want to control everything mm-hmm. as opposed to facilitate and make things easy for people to do business with us. I mean, the reality was this silly little dumb rules thing, as an example, I mean, it multiplied itself. Okay, as I said, it, it affected many, many, many aspects of the organization and eventually, well, I think, was instrumental in keeping our revenue going. Customer loyalty, our retention rates were insane, absolutely insane. And nobody could ever convince me that dumb rules didn't have a major role to play in there. Another one was I call cut the crap. I also got heck for this one because we wanted to cut the crap in the organization. I was told I can't call it crap. Well, <laughs> we called it crap. Crap is, again, it's a, it's, a, it's a friction device which deals more with bureaucracy with the inside greasing of the machine as opposed to going outside to the customer facing. But it was just as important. What are the sorts of things that we are now doing, guys, that doesn't relate to our new strategy? That was the, that was the question around cutting the crap. So we're going to cut out all the crap in the organization that yesterday may have had reason and purpose. But unfortunately, today doesn't because we do not have unlimited time and money. Our resources are limited. We need to husband them. And we are going to get rid of all that crap. Now, the interesting thing is people didn't view deletion as innovation. And yet I can't think of anything that creates more innovative value than deleting functions and projects. And in some cases, the people that went with them that didn't want to change than deletion cutting the crap. It was, it was incredible. And, and, you know, it was always a challenge because the people that were custodians of the crap, uh, when they still were part of the organization, you know, you needed to deal with that and were they willing to change, et cetera. And if they weren't, then they had to self-select themselves out because there can be no mistake. You wanted people that aided viscosity. I want to highlight something. I really want to highlight something here for anyone listening to this. The, what, what really happened was you developed an environment where the frontline people who are getting cussed out, yelled at, screamed at, where they had a voice and they could have buy-in to the processes and procedures of what was going to happen. And anytime an employee can feel like they're valued and part of a solution, they will be highly, much more highly productive and effective in what they're doing. And when you're doing what you were involved in, it was completely based on customer service. And if those people feel the buy-in, they now were proud to have their logo, company logo on their shirt and on their truck and whatever they were in. And it's, it's a total game changer. But when you have all that crap you're dealing with, and cut the dumb rules. If you have all those dumb rules, it's so bureaucracy, so much bureaucracy, they can't possibly connect with upper management. And there's no, and I see this in smaller companies. I mean, it's not just in billion dollar companies. It's, it's uh, happening everywhere. Everybody, I'd say to people when I talk to them, I said, now I know that you're an exception to this, but most companies (laughs) have dumb rules. I know you don't have any, (laughs) of course they laugh. Of course, everybody's got them. And it's not that you're a bad person. It's not that you're a bad company. It's just that we grow up with this stuff and we don't consciously shed our skin. Mm-hmm. We need to shed our skin. Okay. It's just, that's just life. Well, and be okay with it. And here's because a, it's an imperfect world. And here's the thing. One of those dumb rules may have been very effective 24 months ago. 
but things have changed and now it's time to cycle that out. It fixed a problem that existed and the problem solved itself or changed and shifted again. And we don't need to keep that bureaucracy in place. Separately, I'm Gage. And I'm Bontrager. Together, we, we are Gage Bontrager Consulting. We work on changing your mindset, developing leaders, building systems and processes, helping you grow personally and professionally to achieve the success that you want personally and professionally. However you choose to define success for you. Reach out to us and follow us on social media or look us up on the website and that will put you on a path to achieve what is missing in your life. Thanks for watching this episode of Mindset Growth Podcast. Uh, there's another sentence in here and I'm going to move forward on it. You talk about failing leaders tend to place more focus on direction setting rather than on deciding how the strategy will be executed. And I think in the other uh, episode we did, you had a term for that or a phrase that leaders should focus on things in a certain order. Can you repeat that? Well, it's part of what really uh, part of my execute first plan second uh, uh, sort of learning. And, and that is that uh, we spend way too much time trying to get the end game precision in a precision way defined, uh, trying to make it too precise. And again, this is part of the traditional planning approach that seeks to be really clear on the end game and doesn't have any time to figure out how you're going to execute to get to it. Like I've spent planning sessions where 80% of our time has been spent on trying to get the direction or the end game right, really precisely defined, and then we don't have any time to figure out how we're going to execute it. And it occurred to me, especially when I got this data company to, to run, that, that I needed something that focused on execution. Okay, so it came up with this notion that I have of heading west. Like, I think a good strategy is to head west with a certain amount of precision, but not clearly, not as much as as organizations are being encouraged to today by the pedantic. So we'd come up with a head west strategy, right, built over 24 months, and that it absolutely was 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 emphatic around execution. And we would learn. Let me give you an example. So you're sitting in New York, and the strategy would say, well, let's head west. Like when you're writing the strategy, the world is, as I said earlier, so unpredictable. You have no idea where you're gonna end up, quite frankly, regardless of what the pedantics and experts say, you can't create a, an, an equation that will predict that. So let's head west. We will discover together whether being in San Francisco is the right end game or Vancouver. But when we start out, it's really difficult to be precise and it's absolutely unproductive to, act, to, to try and define that. So we head west, we have a goal, et cetera, and then we bear down on execution, learn as much, squeeze as much intelligence out of execution as we can, because it's going to inform whether or not we're on the right track heading west. And we just keep getting in this iterative do loop, right, of, of plan, execute, learn, adjust, execute, learn, adjust, called planning on the run. And we discover over time, over the 24 months and longer, what our right destination is based on the practical results of execution. I am the only one, seriously, the world is a big world, right, in consulting. I am absolutely the only one that talks like this. There is no one else out there that even has a foggiest notion other than you guys 
Right. So you're I part think of the he worthy. just did what he does to his dumb rules. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm not. It doesn't. Be, be, and I'll tell you why. Because I have a perspective that most people haven't had the opportunity to get. That's all it is. Mm -hmm. And I paid attention to it. Results don't come from being precise. They, no. can't, they come from being imperfect because they encourage trying a lot. And success is a function of how many tries you make. No, not how many you know, silver bullets there are out there, probably a bad choice of word, but not how many <laughs> Hail Marys that you, 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 it's just not a one, right. one shot mm -hmm. wonder. No. It, it's not. And yet people right. are taught that if they do this right, this prescription right, right, that's in some textbook with a guy with six letters behind their name, it will turn out right. And you know what that is, guys? That's intellectual dishonesty. Mm -hmm. That's what that is. And I, I tell you what, I really get it. You can, see, you can feel it in me right yes. now. I get so upset about that. It's unfair. It's unfair to people because well, it's not true. I, I feel your passion, and I'm going to clarify one thing, and it leads you just led us right into where I'm taking you next in the book. One of the things that we've done, and we're just in the rebranding process, is an iceberg for our logo, and 20% above is systems and processes, but 80% of below is, is the six inches between your ears. And we're really slow to just, when you roadmap things, you will slow progress. It will be methodical. Some companies can pick it up and pick and choose from it and work. But what you're sharing resonates with our philosophy so much. It's, it's amazing. So we do appreciate uh, what you're sharing with us today. I'm gonna jump forward to page 64. And this one I love because it excites me tremendously. Why passion in your voice will get you gigantic opportunities. And the headlines is a voice without passion is self-serving. And anybody listening to this, think that one through. A voice without passion is self-serving. Another one, and then we'll come back and I'll let you do an overview and capture this. The next section you have is a voice without passion relies on logic. Now I got goosebumps reading that because <laughs> logic seems to be where too many people want to live and it stops a lot of creativity. The third one, a voice without passion doesn't convince anyone. So if you're out there doing sales, trying to grow an organization, you're not going to convince anyone if you don't have passion. And I think a lot of times people think every detail's got to be perfect. You just alluded to that before we got into this. But absolutely, uh, you've got to be passionate about where you're at. The details don't matter as much as to, and to other folks as much as they do to you. The fourth one, a voice without passion cures insomnia. <laughs> I want to hear what you've got to say about that. And then the fifth is a voice without passion lacks conviction and back to the sales side of it. Those two can work very closely together. And a voice without passion cures little controversy. And then the last one is a voice without passion rarely changes the world. So what's Roy's take on passion and those <laughs> headlines? Well, again, it's, it's like, it, it's, it's part of the how-to leadership thing. Okay, because again, what's the context? The context isn't to get branded as a cool uh, communicator. It's not to be appreciated 
as a great public speaker. That's not what it's about. What it's about is what are the what are the triggers? What are the what are the things, the tools that we can use as a leader to actually drive superlative performance in the business? Right. That's what this is all about. And and it's absolutely uh, my experience that um, if you want to convince people to join you in your journey, you have to appeal to them uh, on the emotional side, not the logic side. Mm-hmm. Okay, because it's it's the it's the it's the emotion that actually drive action. The intellect doesn't drive anything. Yeah. As I said to you before, it's kind of like a, a self-serving thing, right? But the emotion, the emotional side, the right side of the hemis of the brain hemisphere, that's what drives you to do something. And so it seems reasonable that when we're communicating as a leader, that we need to arouse the right side of the brain. So for me, okay, and and I'm not being prescriptive. I'm just telling you this is what worked for me. For me, I really, first of all, knew my content. Okay, I was an expert in the strategy of the business. I knew it six ways to Sunday. So it wasn't about that. It's about how can I paint a picture of success, okay, for people. The painting of the picture is kind of like in those days, it was an analog expression, which is driven by voice, right, and all that the voice can do. It wasn't driven by PowerPoint slides with a bunch of bits and bytes on them. It was all about that. And so, I mean, it, it, it sort of led me to say and be convinced that, and I seem to do this naturally. It wasn't difficult for me to get people to say, wow, that was really fun. I got it. It's so simple. You, you just made it. I, I understand. It wasn't hard for me to get them there. And when I looked at it and kind of like, you know, it, it analyzed it, it was because um, I didn't I didn't use the standard things. I mean, I when I talked to a group of people, I was in among them. Okay, at first it was disconcerting for the person maybe that I was standing next to, but I was part of them. Okay, it was Roy in the middle of his in the middle of his tribe, talking about stuff with no props or nothing. Maybe a slide on the thing on the on the screen talking in a way that was was completely oriented towards getting them to feel something getting them to feel okay if i could get them to feel they would get it intellectually and they would absorb it intellectually but if i didn't get them to feel uh, my experience was and just simply observing how i reacted to, to people that did that it would just kind of cascade off and wouldn't leave me with any imprint right and so I mean, there wouldn't be any controversy. I came up with that one because I was always in the middle of controversy, but I was always moving the, 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 the yardsticks forward because I used cutting language, right? I used metaphors that people didn't like. I mean, I, I just painted a picture with language and tone of voice, changing it that was different than they were used to. Mm-hmm. And so it evoked controversy. And I said, good, you guys are thinking about this stuff. And it seems to me you're getting aligned with it, et et cetera, et cetera. And so when I wrote that in the book, it was all about trying to juxtapose the passion side with what typically people are presented with. You know, a lot of speakers speak in monotones, right? They are a cure for insomnia. I use that a joke with my grandkids and say, I know why you haven't read read Papa's book, because it's put you to sleep. And they laugh and they, (laughs) you know, you use it as a doorstop and 
And my 16-year-old has actually read the first three chapters, and she asks me questions about it, which is yay. Huh. But no, it's this is such a powerful leadership tool, okay? That it, but but it can't be made to be a gimmick. I mean, it's got to be real. It's got to be an expression of the soul, right? Targeted to make people feel in such a way that they get the direction and they commit themselves to the journey with you. That's what the point is. Well. As, as you're talking, what I'm hearing is you shared your way of doing it. And again, it's not going to be exactly that way for anyone else because we all have our own personality. But the overriding theme is simply connection and relating to people. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the piece that is so important for anybody in any leadership position or wants to move up in the corporate world they need to work on that connection piece and make sure they're relating to the people that they're relating to. And okay, I'm going to stop. I'm, I'm just going to stop you right there just for a minute. Okay. Yes, I agree, but we need to take the thought, the thinking further. Yeah. It's more than just relating to people. Okay. It's relating them to a way that allows you to take them with you where the organization needs to go. It's not about making them feel good for the sake of feeling good. That's there's too much point. of that that goes on, okay? Yeah. Is I want you to feel good with me, Gary. I want you to, I want to relate to you, but at the end of the day, if all you're doing is standing there feeling good, that's not particularly helpful for me. Right. I need you to come with me on the journey. And so it's, it's how do I leverage that in a way that makes it an obvious solution to the mm -hmm. individual to go on the journey, and the journey drives high performance. So that would be the only kind of like, you know, caveat that I would say in there that it, it's a it's a longitudinal expression, all right, of relationships as opposed to more condensed. So it's uh, moving that feel good into positive motion. Absolutely. And specific results. Hey, mm -hmm. listen, there was nobody that measured results more than Roy. So as we talk about all this stuff, at the end of the day, if top line wasn't growing extraordinarily, then I would have had to gone back and find out, you know, what was not working and maybe come up with some other stuff. But as long as it was working, hey, it was great to feed mm -hmm. it. Just feed the machine, feed the machine. And I don't mean to come across crass on this, but I'm trying to be realistic. I do not want anybody listening to this, okay, to walk away saying, hey, my job as a leader is to make people feel good. No, right. I ain't. That's part of it. It's make them feel good in a way that motivates them to go on your journey and drive results that are unmatched in the marketplace. That's the journey we're on. So right. we just have to make sure we have that characterization. And I'm good. So they're a piece, yeah, they're a piece of the process and integrated in it. I, I, I endorse what you're saying completely. And that's, I just didn't relate that well. Uh, I'm going to move, jump on forward a little bit on uh, page 124. It was move 15. Uh, you talk about a couple of different things and some of these things uh, I, I, we talked a little bit about goal setting and that was more, I think from a company probably uh, perspective that you broke it down in the 24 month, 30 day and 24 month range, but you have undeniable or tenacious goal setters with a substantial number, uh, number of them in the crazy category of, uh, What's a mindset when you're setting goals? I mean, and let's just say we're talking to a small business and I am assuming you work with these as well. You're talking to a small business and they want to have two, 300% growth 
for the next couple of years because there's a lot of places that tell them if you go past 15% each year, you're going to sabotage yourself. But I see them going at three and 400%. And if they do things correctly, they can sustain that for a period of time. Uh, it, it depends a lot of their organizational, but when you're setting these goals, what's some of the mindset you'd want people to go through? Or recommend. So I go back to the conversation we had. It's about setting a strategic game plan for your organization. Okay, that that game plan is all about how big do you want to be, which is if you're at a million today, do you want to be at 15 million in 24 months or do you want to be at 5 million? It makes a difference because the, 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 um, the amount of your growth target determines the character and risk of the strategy. And that's that's why my process is different. I mean, most of them start out with, you know, develop the strategy and then you look at the financial implications of that. Okay, the problem with that is a lot of people go, oh, I don't like the numbers. So they change the assumptions and not the strategy. But you can't have it both ways. So, so, so my experience is the numbers drive your strategy and it also drives innovation and it drives what I call the I don't know factor. Let me give you an example. If we're at a million today, we, we, we come up with a how big that says, in 24 months, we intend to be $5 million. My question to the, and this happened last week. My question to the team is, do you know how to get to 5 million? Because I said, if you do know, then it's the wrong number. If you don't know, then good, we're on the right track. Why is that? Because if you know how to get there, there is no incentive for you to do anything different. You will basically continue on with this mindset you have right, to, to do things a certain way. But if you don't know, that's the driver of creativity and, and, and innovation. It will force you to not gargle Google, but go out and create, not imitate. Okay, so I start off with that. Once you have that number, the next thing is, where are you gonna get the money? This is who to serve. So the objective here is define as small a number of customer groups as you can that have the latent potential to deliver you, in this case, the $5 million, right? Try to make it small because we have limited resources. The third question is the key. How are you gonna compete and win? Not in the market, in the customer groups you've just defined, right? And so I came up with, this is all about competitive differentiation, which I think sucks mostly in today's world. So I had to create a new, a new way to come about it. And you may be getting to, it's called the only statement. We're not better, we're not best. We're not the number one, we're not the market leader. That's claptrap, doesn't mean anything. Just the ultimate expression of narcissism in my view. The only statement says we are the only ones who, the only ones, it's binary. It can be observed, it can be measured. And it is the ultimate manifestation of a competitive position that is truly unique that, that customers can see and they buy on. So, so Gary, what I say to you is if, if you follow the process, the growth that you come up with is the growth that you declare. And now we build a strategy to deliver it. And so is it doable? Absolutely. I, I would say to you, uh, as I said to, to this client, I said, look, at, if, you, if you only reach 4 million, are you failing? And he goes, no, because I never would have come up with 4 million had we not done it. I said, that's the right idea. Don't forget, this is not a perfect world. It's imperfect and we're trying to do the best we can dealing with imperfection. So declare, figure out who you're gonna to speak to, create an only position, boom. You got a strategy, now get on with it, learn from it and we'll modify it on the go. That's the thing that worked for me. And it works for people that actually try that out because we can do this in 48 hours. 
I'm going to oh, read. I got goosies. I got goosies. <laughs> Good. Because I'm going to read a quote by you, uh, and then we're going to keep moving forward because this hour is going really quickly. In okay. school, you do well when you follow rules and fit in. In business, you succeed when you are different from everyone else. And it's that out-of-the-box uh, thinking, I think, that's going to make all the difference for anyone. And it's back to what you said. Even a $4 million company has to think differently to go from one to four. And uh, one of the things that I'm going to move up to is I'm going to try to move through this pretty quickly. 142, you talk about committee work. You talk about hyper-analysis, coordination, all of those things. Uh, what's a lot of your motive? I mean, I just, can you give us a snapshot of that so that any business owner can look at this and take something away from this with an idea of how to maybe collaborate with his group? Well, it's just don't overthink it. I mean, there's, there's, there's too much time on the analysis and too little time on the, on the executing and learning. And yet success comes from the latter, not the former. So get it right, do your work, get it as close as you can, and get on with it. I mean, you know, if you're about to make a, a $50 decision, don't spend three and a half days trying mm -hmm. to get the, the strategy right behind it and the thinking right behind it. Try it. Right. Try it, mm -hmm. okay, and learn right. from it and move on. We can make good That's the whole thing. We're stuck. We're stuck in analysis, which is encouraged by, again, put the textbook down, guys. Come on. Yeah, let's move forward. I'm going to move you forward to when I found this, I had goosebumps. This was one of my absolutely most wonderful things I discovered in your book. And it's page 207 is where it starts. And it's move five. Why the price cutting game is crazy to play and is absolutely wrong. So many business owners over and over and over are only concerned about the price cutting game. Can they beat the competitor by $3? And will that make the difference in the sale? Drives me crazy. I have yeah, stories it, of how I've helped people increase their bids when they discovered they weren't the lowest and yeah. taking them through the steps to upsell it. And they'll come back going, I can't believe we got it. We added money to it. And it was exactly. Look, at, I talk about it very, very harshly. I, I was a CMO and, I, and, and price competition, first of all, is illusory and it's lazy. Okay, it's really easy to focus on price. Okay, because you don't have to be a particular genius in anything else but cutting numbers. Okay, what price cutting does, okay, is it communicates that you've reduced value. And people don't get this. Okay, price and value are supposed to be a match. Okay, it is. So what happens is the objective should be to increase value and increase price. Okay, because the world of premium prices is a wonderful world. All right. If you reduce price and you exist at that level, unless you're fortunate enough to have the economies of scale and scope, which most of us mere mortals in business don't have, unless you have that, you reduce price. Customers love it, but they're very promiscuous. Customers yeah. are fickle. They're going to leave you for a better deal if you're in that space and your margins get squeezed. It's a stupid place to be, guys. It is. Right. And so the whole point here is you need to understand that when you reduce price, First of all, you're part of a herd, your margins get squeezed, and you're telling the market that you have less value mm -hmm. under the lower prices than you had at the higher prices. Take those resources, figure out how to add value. I talk a lot in the book about packaging, not bundling. Bundling sucks. Bundling is price discounting in disguise. It really is. It's a horrible place to be. I don't like it, right? 
figure out a way to add value packages together that deal with people's cravings. I talk a lot in the book about cravings. Yeah, Marketing these days is not about satisfying needs. It's about um, meeting the requirements of what you crave, what you lust for, what you covet, what you desire, because those markets are price insensitive and they don't have any competitors. Isn't that where you want to be as a marketer? Well, and I think an example of this is I see so many sales folks going out there and they're just trying to tell a client about their product and their service. And I always try to stop them and say, the first thing you need to do is ask at least three questions and find out what's most important to them and what it is they want to achieve. Because once you can check off the box of three questions, price is not at the top of the list. And they're not, you know, if you're all about price, they're going to look at the, they're not going to look at the proposal. They're going to look at the bottom right corner and nod ahead, yes or no, and move on down the road. But if you can get three questions, three things that are important to them, uh, to me, it just makes all the difference because so often we've all been in the place, somebody's trying to sell us something and we want a piece of the product. We just don't want the whole product the way they're trying to deliver it. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. And unfortunately, and I talk about this, but we live in a product flogging world. Yes. Okay, where the emphasis is in flog products, flog units, because your sales comp is based on that. And we forget about the fact that the long term requires us to provide sustaining value. And one of the things that I used to do is I used to come at it from the point of view of, of creating a repertoire, particularly for high value clients, of what I call customer secrets. Now, a customer secret is something that only you as a salesperson have been able to, to, to discover. So your, your, your objective is to be a secrets addict, to go out and discover things that nobody else knows about your clients. Why is that important? Well, it's important, Roy, because I'm gonna use the secret in a way that I design uh, value packages. And when a screw up happens in the business, and we, we unfortunately and unintentionally screw you over, I'm gonna have a secret that I will pull out and use on you that will make you go, huh, it's okay, Roy. I know everybody makes mistakes, but wow, this was a real surprise. And I talk a lot about that in the service section of the book, you know, under service strategy, creating gasp-worthy moments by screwing a customer over. And not too many people have a strategy for screwing customers over. And yet, it's the most incredible loyalty-building tool in the world, but nobody plans on it. It's called service recovery. And I didn't have oh. time to bring that up. We've got so much material. <laughs> I'm glad you touched on it, though, because it usually can build the long-term client is what happens out of those scenarios. Bouncing ahead real quick to page 246, it's move three, how sales overkill can handedly be beat ruthless competitors. Uh, you talk about a little bit the excess and another paragraph here is uh, excess note is the notion that organizations need to apply in order to stand apart from their competitors and gain long-term competitive advantages. You kind of alluded to all that, but it really comes back to service and, and the quality of what you're doing. And I don't know if there's anything you want to elaborate, elaborate on that or not. Well, the only thing I would say is the idea behind it is to have in your head the notion that you're going to do more of what's expected. Okay, so they, so somebody, somebody, if you have a need X that you've crystallized in your head, the next thing is, can you ask a question or two, going back to your questions, a question or two that might expose 
a secret for you, right? Right. That would allow you to play into that. And so the notion of of doing more, being excessive, uh, is is something that's very consistent with with achieving long term customer growth and competitive advantage. I. Uh... I have one and then we're going to wrap this up and I'm going to get a few. I want you to give a, a parting shot then as well. But uh, I, you've got a, on 336, movie 11, what is the best way to describe high performance? Uh, if you would describe that a little bit, I mean, you go on into that chapter and it talks about storytelling and serving others. Uh, you know, unmatched customer service. We're at the very end of the book on that. If you could kind of do a summary on that and wrap this up and and give people an idea of what they can learn and expect out of this book and why they should buy it and follow you on social media, I would appreciate that. <laughs> well, first of all, I'm not here flogging my book. If I did, I wouldn't no, be I know you're not. dog food. I know right? you're so not, I, but, but you, are wanna... here, you are here to change people's lives and help them have a better quality of life and serve others. Thank you. Absolutely right. I'm I'm kidding with you. Um, look at the the main the the main takeaway um, that I would say is I want you to think about this whole notion of be different. Okay, the world needs you to be different. This book is a how-to manual about how to do that. And when you look at one of the one one of the the, the things that I've done in it, and you say, hey, that's simple. The implication might be that there are others out there that do it. And what I'm saying to you is it's so simple that in this complicated world, people just don't pay any attention to it. And yet I've shown that the simple things that you can do to, to light fires in people and get them to go on your journey drive amazing results. So I would say be different. Look for ways of being different. Tomorrow, what I want you to do when you wake up is ask yourself the question, how can I be different today? And every time you're confronted with a problem or a challenge, put your be different lens on and ask the question, how can I do this differently? Try and make it part of your behavior, trying to make it part of, of every day. And if you, if you do something different tomorrow, right, and you are absolutely excited and amazed with the results, tell somebody else what you're up to. Help, help, help us spread the virus. To be different virus in a world that is so screwed up uh, that we ne it needs an army of us right. okay, out there pushing forward. That's what I would say. Well, I appreciate you joining us, Roy. I uh, really have enjoyed this. This was uh, a couple of quick hours, and I appreciate uh, really everything you took the time to put into the book. I know, Heather, you had an opportunity to read a lot of his blogs, which gave you yep. a lot of insight. Uh, what are some of your thoughts and takeaways? Uh, first thought is to our listeners, go to the uh, be different or be dead.com and look at his blogs. I mean, so many of the things that you brought up, Roy, are, are it's right here. It's right here. It's, it's a fun read. And I just think that anyone that's trying to better themselves and increase sales, this is going to be such a benefit to them. It's just a little quick reminder and a short, maybe a 20 minute read or something like that, that can really make quite a difference uh, in their daily life. Uh, I, I guess one of my takeaways was absolutely, I think we get caught up a lot with education and mm. processes and systems and they become very clumsy. 
and it's not a good way to grade really anything. Uh, fortunately for me, education was certainly not a, a you know, a requirement for success. Uh, it was, it, or formal education, it's the education and the energy you carry after that. So uh, really appreciate Roy joining us on Mindset Growth Podcast. If you would please go out and subscribe to our channel on whatever channel that you like to watch our podcasts on, we would appreciate that. Uh, hit the like and the share button, send it to those that uh, your friends and those others that you know like to listen to podcasts. If you have questions, you have guests, uh, please drop us a note and let us know. We would love to interview other folks as well and answer your questions. We will discuss those in other episodes on this podcast. So with that, thank you for joining us on Mindset Growth Podcast.